let's move on out of Deuteronomy 20 to the very exciting next chapter of Deuteronomy 21, which actually is very exciting. It's, it's good stuff. I hope you came hungry tonight. I make no apologies for the time we're going to spend here. Um, this is it's just good stuff. I'll just leave it at that. I'll let, let the word be the word. Leviticus 19, verse 18, was the first time it was said, we've read it, you've heard it, you will recognize it. Jesus turns around and quotes it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, think about that for a moment. Not the act of loving your neighbor as yourself. We'll get there and we'll talk about that. But think about this, that the almighty, all-powerful creator God, splendiferous in the heavens, magnificent in all things, awesome in might and power and glory, is concerned with human relationships. That's fantastic. Love your neighbor as yourself, says the Lord. Why? Because it matters to him. Because he actually cares if we're getting along. He actually cares if we're treating each other well. It, it should tell us something remarkable about God, something we know about God, but, but this is practical, it's real, that the one who does not love doesn't know God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, for God is love. A friend from China years ago told us, love is not God. God is love, but love is not God. I mean, it's such a profound point that our culture says love is God. And then our culture redefines love as feelings and emotions and goo. But God is love. Therefore, love is defined by God. He is love incarnate. He is the very definition. John said, we have come to know, 1 John 4, 16, and have believed the love which God has for us. That God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Well, first and foremost, because God wants you to. Because it's important to him that we love each other. So tonight, Moses preaches on. He continues in this amazing, ongoing sermon. You think, I preach long sometimes. Check it out. We're in chapter 21, and Moses is still going strong. And he is still rocking the truth of God's word. Chapter 21, verse 1. And as he preaches on, remember, he's relating God's commandments. And right now, we're in the section that relates to the last half of the Ten Commandments, all about loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the focal point. That's what Moses is getting across with all these various and sundry laws. The point of all of them is love. It's loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, I'm going to give you as we go a series of 11 or 12 practical relationship principles that will emerge out of this. As we look at the laws for Israel and Moses explains them, practical relationship principles that we'll go over tonight. So check it out. Verse 1, chapter 21. If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him. In other words, Deb got off uh, scot-free. Just kidding. Then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. So you get that. They find a dead body out in a field, a corpse. Obviously murdered. They don't know by who. 
Murderer got away, ran, fled. So they're to measure where this body lays to the closest city. And it shall be, verse 3, that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. All the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Now note that, in the eyes of the Lord, God is watching. He's watching how we treat each other. He is aware of our relationships. And he knows who the murderer is, by the way. He saw it happen. He's fully aware of it. And I can guarantee you, he will deal with that person. However, ever since Abel, God has made this much clear, wherever innocent blood is shed, blood guilt resides. If blood is shed, it cries out, as it were, from the ground. Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God was fully aware of the murder of Abel. And it would be an awfully emotional statement from a distant, detached God, wouldn't it? The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. That, that is chock full of passion and heart and pain and pathos. God's not some distant God who knows nothing of you and has nothing to do with you. He is so intimately connected that when Abel was murdered, he heard his blood crying. He sees this. He, he goes to Cain. Do you remember what Cain's initial response was? Cain's response, Genesis 4, 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Principle number one, I am my brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. So we have a situation here where someone has been murdered and there is now blood guilt on the land. Why? Because I'm my brother's keeper. Because my brother matters to me. And what we have at the beginning of this chapter is a vicarious punishment. See, what the Lord commanded all the way back through Noah was life for life. If someone kills a man, his life is required of him. And here we see the sixth commandment that he's been talking about and applying in various ways. Now we see the sixth commandment violated. Someone is murdered. You shall not murder. Murder has happened, but the murderer is unknown. So the heifer becomes a stand-in or what we would call a substitutionary sacrifice. Because again, where blood is spilt, atonement is required. It's that important to God. Now, you could say, well, what if the murderer was from out of the area? 
And the town closest to the murdered corpse is completely innocent. Even the murderer doesn't live there. True, but a person is still murdered. You still have this act. And again, it matters to the Lord. Therefore, it must matter to his people. There's still blood guilt. By the way, blood guilt is a phrase in the Hebrew. It's not just one word, blood guilt. It's ha-naki-dam. It's ha-naki-dam, which is innocent, innocent blood shed. Innocent blood shed. We would just say that as a phrase. It's, it's said that way in the Hebrew, ha-naki-dam, blood guilt. Principle number one, I am my brother's keeper. So I share some sense of responsibility for my brother, for my sister, even for those unknown to me. And by the way, being, sharing, being my brother's keeper, it, it speaks first and foremost of the family of God, fellowship. To love your neighbor as yourself speaks first and foremost of those who are within that family relationship. In fact, when the Lord commanded you shall love your neighbors yourself, he's commanding it to Israel and Israel will be living in the land together. Their neighbors will be Israelites. So the first order of business when it comes to loving another person is loving people in the church. We ought to at least start there. That doesn't mean we shouldn't love beyond the walls of the church, but at least within the fellowship, love should be primary. And I am my brother's keeper. And where one suffers, we all suffer together. One has obviously suffered here. But in the family of God, we are to care about this, to, to love one another. John 1.12, as many as received him, he, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And check this out. I am my brother's keeper, but the more I accept and embrace responsibility for my brothers and sisters, the more mature my faith becomes. Listen, you want to mature in your faith? Love people. You want to mature in your faith? Don't go off to Bible college. I'm not saying don't go to Bible college, but that's not going to mature your faith. It'll grow your knowledge, give you some understanding perhaps you didn't have before. But if you want to grow in your faith, in, in your relationship with God, it's going to depend on your relationship with other people. I am my brother's keeper, but principle number two, maturity accepts responsibility. Maturity says whether I was there or not, I bear responsibility for my brothers and sisters. I care enough to involve myself with them. Notice that it is the elders of the city. So the older men. Now they're the leaders, the elders, but they're also the mature ones or they wouldn't be elders. And they're the ones who now come out to perform this act of criminal expiation. You know, the breaking the neck of the heifer and this ritual act that is to expiate the blood guilt that is there in the land. The mature are those who are willing to shoulder the blame and provide the covering. The immature are pointing fingers. The immature are saying, but he, but she, but they. The mature says, I bear responsibility here. There's a, a murdered brother or sister right outside my city walls. That's my responsibility. Oh, I may not have raised the knife or wielded the axe or committed the act, but that's my brother. That's my sister. And I have responsibility to him, to her. Hebrews chapter 5. 
You've heard this before, solid food, Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I believe that this is something God is teaching with this act of expiating the blood guilt, involving the city in this, having responsibility for this, and the maturity that comes because of it. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. In other words, the Hebrew pastor would say, we understand repentance. We don't have to keep going over that again. We know what that means. We know what it's about. And, and he says, and, and the laying on of hands. That's just something we do in, in our fellowship. We, we all know that. And the resurrection of the dead, of course we believe that. If you don't believe that, you're not a follower of Jesus. And of faith toward God, of instructions about washings. He goes on, he says, and, and eternal judgment. He says, this we will do if God permits. So listen, the washing of hands. The laying on of hands. These elders come out and they wash their hands over the offered heifer. This is not elementary. This is maturity. The washing of the hands over the heifer. Bearing responsibility before the Lord, but also proclaiming innocence, not knowing what has happened, but willing to pay, willing to stand before God and accept responsibility for what happened. They wash their hands. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand up in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. By the way, if the murderer is in town and they're going through this entire act, they're declaring, we know nothing of, we really don't know that there's anybody who's done this, if, if word's already getting out. I saw them fighting. Did you see that? Yeah, he hit him. I don't know what happened after that. Now he's dead. You know, the elders would know. So it's also a way that God is bringing out the truth. But they, they wash their hands. Psalm 26, verse 6, I shall wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, David says, O oh Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. It is a sign of maturity to wash the hands in innocence. What do you mean? I mean to walk openly before God and for loving your neighbor as yourself. Remember what John also said, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. If we walk in the light, Openly, honestly, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship. fellowship. It takes openness. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all transgression. Washed hands over the heifer, walking openly with innocent hands before the Lord, loving our neighbors ourselves. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, agape love, unconditional love, covers a multitude of sins. And think about this. What was it that uh, Jesus said when John the Baptist questioned his request to be baptized? When Jesus comes up to John, and he says, hey, I, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, are you kidding me? No, you, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus answered and said, listen, Matthew 3.15, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the maturity I'm talking about. 
Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was innocent, right? Absolutely, completely, 100% righteous, yet he associated himself with the guilty. He took responsibility for our blood guilt. While Pilate was off washing his hands of the whole thing, Jesus' blood was washing us clean. He paid for our blood guilt with his own perfectly pure blood. By the way, the word slain up at the top in verse 1, if a slain person is found, you might note this in your Bibles, the Hebrew word is halal. Halal, it's a hard H sound, halal, and it means fatally wounded, so slain, but it also translates in another place, pierced. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through, mechalal, for our transgressions. The slain man. Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So by parallel, you could say Jesus himself became the slain man on the hill whose blood rendered us clean of all blood guilt because his blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's the Hebrew pastor. Chapter 12, verse 24, the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. We've said this before, but I love this. It's not the crying blood of vengeance or recompense from the ground. It's not Abel crying justice for unfair treatment. It's grace and mercy from the cross, the blood of Jesus doesn't look to condemn you and me, but to cleanse us and to save us. One more little nugget in this opening section. Did you notice where all of this was to take place? It's in a valley with running water. It's part of the promise to all who are redeemed by the lamb who was slain by the blood of the lamb. John 7, 38, who, who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says he's talking about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Well, verse 10, when you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and she shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." And it shall be, if you're not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. This is amazing. Again, God getting into the nitty gritty of people's lives. What does God have to do with a woman who's brought in after a battle? I mean, come on, big deal. Just leave it alone, Lord. But no, no, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. God is intimately involved with these things. Now, I referred to this a bit on Sunday that captives of war were to be treated with compassion. They were brought into Israel and were to be afforded the care of the Israelites and not brutalized, not mistreated. And this is so different than most accounts of ancient warfare. 
Most accounts have the conquering soldiers raping and ravaging the women. That's what you did. That was part of the spoils of war. Take the women. And so they would do that. God says, no, 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 not my people. Uh Uh-uh. You're not going to do that. If you want a woman who's been taken captive when you've conquered a city, (laughs) marry that girl and treat her right. And he sets the standard. But wait a month? You got to wait a whole month? That's going to slow things down a bit, won't it? The soldiers all hopped up on the, you know, man, that testosterone is just pumping because he's been at war. Give me a woman. And wait a month. Okay. She's given a month. <laughs> it's amazing because it seems like the women got that quicker than us guys. What? what are you? Anyway, no. He has to wait. He has to wait while she waits. And it's a month of mourning. And note what she has to do. She has to shave her head. And then she has to get a manicure. And then she's quarantined in the house. Why? What's that all about? The shaving of her head would remove the allure of foreign beauty. I mean, immediately. She had this beautiful hair and then, boy, yeah, I'll give it a month. (laughs) And it it replaced the passion of the soldier with the compassion of a husband. You really want her? You really want her? You wait. She shaves her head. And you care for her. And you let her mourn. And what would that do to the soldier's heart as he's watching her day in and day out? She's mourning the loss of her family, of her life. It's going to do something to even the most hardened of soldiers. And it released the implications of slavery because God applies certain Israelite purification rites to this woman. So that as she goes through those, she is now looked at, treated as, and considered to be among those of Israel. She is now an Israelite, married into the people. And by the way, if the soldier at the end of all this thinks he made a huge mistake, probably shouldn't have done this, it's not her fault. She is given freedom and is allowed to go wherever she wishes. Do you see the love of God here at play? Principle number three, true love waits. That was the greatest campaign. Maybe you heard about it. Back in the 90s, it was a youth ministry campaign, and they had flyers and videos, and they had games to play, and they sent out all this stuff, and we all spent all kinds of money on it to take our youth groups through it. And I took a youth group through it, I think, five or six different times. Every other year, we took time, and we did true love waits. True love waits. Because the principle is absolutely sound. It's as sound today as it was in the 90s, as it was in the 1800s, and as it was back in the days of Israel. True love waits. You, you really love, truly love her? You have no problem slowing it down because the love relationship is nothing like the heat of battle. The love relationship is a decision. You all know this. I mean, that woman, she could be so alluring on a date Sweet and scented and showered and shampooed and shining. But shave her head and stick her in the house for a month. Think about this. It's one thing to see her all perfected on the date. It's another thing to see her when she's got post-nasal drip. I mean, there's love. 
What about when the guy is not trying to impress? He just is who he is. The point is that feelings are shaky foundations for relationship. Now, that applies to all of us. Some of you are maybe thinking, well, I'm, I'm way past dating. And if I ever lost my spouse, I would never date anyway. I'm kind of there. I've told Cheryl that. If she goes on home to Jesus before me, I'm going to become a lonely, grumpy, old curmudgeon. That's, that's just what's going to happen. Why? Because I don't want to go back in. The whole dating thing. True love waits. Feelings are shaky foundations for a relationship. And in a marriage... In fact, in any relationship, if we're basing everything on how I feel, we're in trouble because I don't always feel good. But that doesn't mean I can't always love her or love my kids or love my relatives or love my neighbor as myself. So principle number three, true love waits. Think about Jacob. Jacob waited, right? He waited for Rachel seven years. Genesis 29, verse 20 says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. You need to realize that he had already served seven years for her. And at the end of seven years, they had the wedding, she had the veil on and everything. And the next morning, he wakes up, looks at her, huh, and it's not Rachel. It's weak eyes. It's Leah. And I don't know, you know the weak eyes thing. Says she had weak eyes. I don't know if she was like cross-eyed. You know, can you imagine that next morning? And so he was lied to by Laban, but he goes back and Laban says, no, no, I mean, we, have to, we have to marry off the older first, <laughs> but if you want Rachel, we'll, we'll marry her off to you as well, but you got to serve me seven more years. They seem like a day to him because he loved her. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. Apply this to loving our neighbor as ourself. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Those two lines right there are difficult. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I look at that and think that is a great list of qualities for a spouse. If I'm talking to my, to my sons, my daughters, I say, hey, go to 1 Corinthians 13, read through it. That's what you're looking for in the right guy, in the right gal. But you know what? 1 Corinthians 13, which I've read at more weddings than I can remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about a description of a loving spouse. In fact, it's not even about how we are to love each other as we love ourselves. No, 1 Corinthians 13 is the description of the love of God. Because you can put Jesus' name in every one of those verses straight through and he alone fits. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. That's love. The love of God. The God who is love. How long has Jesus been waiting for his bride? I mean, we're at 2,000 years. Not seven, 2,000. And then he's going to take her, the church, to be with him, not just for a month, but for seven years before then he returns with her to rule and reign on the earth. So the treatment of the captured slave girl, like the church, was to be from the husband's perspective, from the groom's perspective, with love 
and compassion and patience. That's exactly what Jesus has shown us. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day that he wills what he has to his sons, he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. You know what this is? It's a correction. <laughs> it's a correction to things that had happened prior to this. He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and to him belongs the right of the firstborn. And we get this window into Jewish understanding of what the firstborn means. That when it says that Jesus is the firstborn, Colossians chapter 1, the firstborn over all creation, it doesn't mean first created. It means the firstborn. It means the inheritor. It means the one who has all the rights thereof. It's a positional statement. And Moses is reminding the people, you have a first, if you have two wives, and you don't love one, but you love the other one, you don't get to transfer the rights of the firstborn. The firstborn must be the firstborn. And then you give him the rights of the firstborn, which is, again, the, it's the responsibility. It's a double portion that the firstborn child got. Why? Because he now is responsible if father dies, he's responsible for mom, for his brothers and sisters, for maintaining the household and the inheritance. So he gets a double portion to do that to care for everybody. It's an important role. And this played out several times among the patriarchs, Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and Ephraim over Manasseh. But right here, the Lord lays out through Moses the standard that firstborn rights go to the firstborn. Principle number four, love is not preferential. Love is not preferential. He looks at the parents and he says, avoid preferential treatment of your kids. And that's not always easy to do. Now, my son Corey is sitting over here, so I'll just tell you, he's my favorite. <laughs> avoid preferential treatment. You know something I realized as a young dad years and years ago? I realized there were some days where, man, Corey, Corey, he's my man. And Hannah was annoying me like no one's business. And there were some days where that would flip. Sorry, son. And I'd suddenly like, Hannah, I just love being, Hannah's just such a joy right now. And Corey's just kind of annoying me, you know. And it wasn't them. It was me. It was me. Over the years, I have found, and I'm just saying this to parents, that my love of a son or a daughter, if I start to find myself preferring one over another or over the others, it checks my spirit to give more love to the others. Because there's something human in us. And if you are a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There are, there are certain times where you're like, I really love this kid, and I could really put him out on the street. <laughs> and when you have those moments where, boy, I'm loving this, but this is annoying, then this one's the one who needs my love. And that's where I got it. And I would always find that my love then would start to increase when I intended to love. And it works with our children and it works in our families and it works in our church and among our neighbors as well. If there's someone who's hard for you to love, intend to love them. Decide to love them anyway. And you will find yourself ultimately loving them, showing no preferential treatment. 
Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. There's a responsibility here. So God now is getting into the mess of our families as well as among our neighbors and all these love relationships. God's just getting involved. And he's saying, don't prefer one over another. Why? Because he doesn't. Romans 2.11 says there is no partiality with God. And by the way, the cross shows no preference. The cross is for anybody who will receive Jesus. Not just those who have earned it or deserve it or look the part to receive it. No, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that is unlovely, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul has just followed a list of all those who will not receive the kingdom and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I love that verse because it makes me think about our fellowship and really any fellowship out there. If we were to do a Sunday morning display of all of our sins over the years, we just name each one of us, you guys first, but we, we put a name up there, Les Dams, and here's what Les has done in his life. This is the filth we have to deal with. And then we move on to Doug Audie. This is one of our shepherds. Are you kidding me? What, he did that? And, and we just go list for list, for person, for person. And you know, Paul says that. He goes, these are some messed up people at Corinth. First, read, read the passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verses like 8 through 10. Read what he lists out there. This is an ugly, corrupt group of people. And then Paul says, but such were some of you, but you were washed. You were made clean, man. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God doesn't play favorites. So don't show preferential treatment, Moses says, to your second born because he happens to be the son of the wife you love. No, you, you do what is right. Now you might say, okay, but question, if a man has two wives, so this is supporting polygamy. Right there in the Bible, there it is. God is supporting polygamy. God never approves of polygamy, ever. What God does is manage it because that's where they were. And again, we see the love of God because rather than try and snap them out of it, he, with patience, teaches them out of it. And ultimately, Israel comes to understand it is not, you are not to have two wives or two husbands. Polygamy is not godly. And so God patiently begins by putting down parameters until he brings Israel all the way around. And the proof of this is Jesus himself because Jesus reached all the way back pre-law. Before the law of Moses, before the polygamy began, he reaches all the way back. In fact, he sandwiches marriage in the Bible. Goes back to Genesis 2.24 and then in Matthew 19 verse 4, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God's intention was always an Adam for an Eve, a man for a woman, one for one to become one. That's the biblical divine intention. You know this, principle number five, marriage is singularly defined. 
Marriage is singularly defined. And I don't care what the culture has to say about it, whether it be this culture or any other, marriage is very clearly and singularly defined as a man and a woman becoming one. That's the divine definition, the, the sacred standard, if you will. Always has been, always will be, regardless of culture. Now, skip down to chapter 22. I'm going to save the uh, rest of the verses in 21 for Sunday morning. Chapter 22, verse 1, continue on. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it and then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey and you shall do the same with his garment and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countryman which he has lost and, ha and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. Principle number six, love is not negligent. Now this is Interesting to me because you can't say you love your neighbor and neglect their needs. And it's a little challenging for your pastor because honestly in my neighborhood on the street where I live, when I go home, I have a tendency to want to just be home. Let them deal with themselves. I just want to be home. I don't want, I'm not, you know, I'm not Mr. Rogers. I, you know, could actually, I drive through my neighborhood, but it's convicting to me to think about this, that love does not neglect my neighbors. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, I don't hate any of my neighbors. Some of them are a little annoying, but I don't hate them. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And I'm like, okay, good. I can love my neighbor. I don't have to have anything to do with my neighbor, right? Torah expresses more to this, more to love. The Hebrew word neglect. You shall not Neglect. He says, you are not allowed to neglect. It's hitalim, and it means to ignore or to be unaware of or to hide yourself from. God says to Israel, you're not allowed to do that. You, you keep your eyes open to the neighborhood. You care about people. Ignorance is no excuse. What we could say is love is awareness. So principle number six, love is not neglect. Love is awareness. That God is challenging his people to be tuned into our brothers and our sisters' lives such that we, we see their needs and we hear their heartaches and we respond to their crises. And when there's a ram standing in your driveway, this happened to us. When was that, like five years ago? Three, three or four years ago, we look out the window and there was a ram, I kid you not, Just standing there looking around, I'm like, you go talk to him. I'm 
And we had to figure out, well, who's this, this? What is this doing here? Are there rams on Whidbey Island? Well, somebody owned a ram, apparently, and we found out who it was and, and got the ram back to them. I wasn't about to have it live with me until we found out. No, love is awareness. We see the need and we respond to the need, and God says, you need to act on this. Why, Lord? Because I know you, Rick, and I know if I don't tell you to act on it, you will neglect your neighbors. It's active love. To love my neighbor is myself. Romans 12, verse 12 says, we're to be rejoicing in hope. I like that one. Persevering in tribulation. That's cool. That's tough. Devoted to prayer. Okay, I, I can pray. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Like I said, for a guy whose door closes behind him when he walks in the house and he just goes, I love being home. The practice of hospitality is, it's always been kind of a challenge for me. Now you're all going to think, okay, so if I go over to Rick's house, he really doesn't want me there. No, no, that's not, that's not it. Cheryl has the gift of hospitality. She acts on that. But the Lord is calling all of us out of ourselves that love of a neighbor is more than just saying, yeah, I love you. It is not neglecting them. It's not ignoring them. Paul even says in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, verse 5. So then, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And just reading that verse could get this teaching banned from YouTube. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor a man a woman's clothing. Now, there's been a lot of talk about this, what was going on historically, and there were ancient cults and there were ancient uh, idolatrous religions where part of the religious experience was the changing out and wearing men dressing up as women and acting out in, in this whole bizarre ritual, and that kind of thing went on. But I read this, and right here, right now, in American society today, I can't imagine us being any further off from this command. You're not to do this. And, and you notice God doesn't just use like words that can be reinterpreted. He describes exactly. Boys don't dress like girls. Girls don't dress like boys. Men don't wear clothing and make yourselves to look like women. Women do not make yourselves to look like men. That is to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. It's an abomination. His word. This is just what his word says. And by the way, this is not hate speech to read this and to mention this. It is the love of God to hate that which destroys people. And this kind of behavior destroys culture. By the way, the last time we saw the word abomination was in Deuteronomy 18, 12, and it was applied there to witchcraft. God hates it. Don't, don't lean into witchcraft. Why? Because you're relying on false power instead of the true power. You're relying on something that's evil and wicked instead of that which is good and righteous. And in this case, an abomination, I've told you the word before, to'abot in the Hebrew, it means detestable, loathsome. These are practices that God absolutely hates. Think this through with me. All of the gender confusion and deception that's going on in this land is not new. Okay, it may be a little new for America. It may be that it's just more pronounced now in our culture, but it is not new. It is as archaic and corrupt as Canaan's land was itself. 
And tragically, what it's doing is it is, it's affecting teens and even children. This is no longer limited to some adult who's kind of doing some wacky thing that no one really pays attention to on the weekend. Not that that's any better. But it's the impact on kids. And listen to this. For those adults who stand by and know better, those who would support this confusion, because that's what it is, whether by suggestion or by reinforcement or I would even add by negligence, Jesus reserves some strong warning. He said in Matthew 18, verse 4, whoever then humbles himself is this child. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you make one of these children stumble, and I think I told you somewhat recently, but did you know that you can, as a parent, take a child down to uh, Washington, um, uh, Seattle Children's, and that they actually have hormone therapy to suppress a child's hormones till they're old enough to have sex change operations? And God would say, that is an abomination. That is abhorrent to me. You might say, well, but why does God care? If it, if a little girl thinks she's a little boy, if a little boy thinks he's a little girl, if someone wants to dress like the opposite sex, if someone wants to say they're transgender and change the whole thing, why does God care? Because he cares. Because he loves. And listen, even if we have the medical capability to change chromosomes, which we don't, we don't. Everything that, that, that we medically do right now in, in this area, it's just moving around flesh. It does not change us at the chromosomal level. But even if we had the capability to do that, listen, this is why it so matters to God. He knows who he created us to be. He knows what he created us to be. He knows how he made us. And by the way, with that, the act of redemption is Jesus seeking to reclaim his people to be just that, his creation. His beloved, his children. And by the way, even as I talk about this, that is the heart that we are called to bring to this very deceived and confused world. Not to be afraid to address this issue, but at the same time to address it with love and compassion. Especially with kids who are so confused and really don't know because they're being told even by adults, no, no, if you think, if you feel that way, note that, if you feel that way, maybe you're that way and maybe you should just dress that way or be called that way or, or be, all, all adults are doing is, is feeding that confusion rather than loving kids enough to go, you know, I know you feel like that, but let's start with basics. God created you a young man. God created you a young woman. Now, young woman, you may love sports. Great, play them. <laughs> young man, you, you might be sensitive and, and be into art and cooking. And I'm being really, you know, general here. But it doesn't change who you are before God. We are ministers of reconciliation, bringing the redemptive love of God into a confused and deceived world. So our response is not to be ugly with those who are gender confused. 
our response is to love them enough to be honest and say, there's a better way. And God loves you as you are internally, not all this external stuff. Okay, enough on that. Verse six. If you happen to come, I figure if I'm going to be, you know, banned from YouTube, let's spend some time on it. Verse six. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young, but you shall certainly let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. And I'm so thankful that verses six and seven come next because they're a little easier. <laughs> so he says, you're walking along, you see mama bird and the eggs. You can take the eggs, but leave mama bird alone. No fried chicken with deviled eggs. You can't do that. <laughs> principle number eight. Listen, love life. Did I give you principle number seven? Oh, okay, well, that, I skipped right over it because this was a tough one. Principle number seven is very simple. If you want to write it down, women be women, men be men. There you go. Principle number eight, love life. Love life. And you might even add enough to respect its continuance. This is what God's doing here. He's saying, look, I've, I've created this little bird and she's given eggs and it's fine to take the eggs and to use them to, for, you know, sustenance and, and food and provision. That's, that's all good, but, but leave mama so that she can reproduce again. I love this because God cares even about mama bird. She matters to him. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more, much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus reminds us, look, God cares for the birds. He cares about you too. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. For the very heads, hair, hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many Sparrows, God even cares about mama bird. And that says more to me about the love of God and the goodness of God than it does even about how this law applies in my life. Again, it's just about respecting life and caring about the life that God has created. Why? Because God cares. Verse eight, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. In Israel, the rooftops were flat. That was the way they were built. And, and with those flat roofs, they would use them as patios. They would go up on the roof. Remember, Peter was up on the roof of Simon the Tanner when he was praying and, and waiting and he was hungry up there and he had that vision from God. So he's up on the roof and they would build them that way. And so, so the Lord says through Moses, I, I want you to build you know, railings around the top of your house so that people don't wander and fall off and land on their heads like Eutychus. Eutychus, great story, Acts chapter 20. Young man who falls out the window while Paul preaches on into the night. We're going to try and keep any of you from falling out of the window tonight. But this is again, it's in the same flow. This is respecting life. It's practical respect for continuing life, even in something as common as roofing. Just protect life. By the way, speaking of roofs, Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. 
Go up to the roof and shout. Why? Because the gospel is life. The gospel is life. Proclaim life. Now, Moses turns from the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And he's been dealing with a lot of life principles and loving each other in life and having a better life. And now he turns to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed or all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. This is just one of those. And if you're with us in, in Numbers chapter 15, you've, you've heard the explanation of it, but it's, it's a little strange, isn't it? Don't, don't, don't use the ox and the donkey together to plow a field. Now that one I get. They probably don't get along real well. I can see the ox wanting to just to go straight forward and the donkey just sitting down and the two start to get in an argument and then you got to deal with that. You know, or, or the, the seed in the field, I don't know if that means that Knott's Berry Farm would not be allowed to exist because of the boysenberry in the mixture of this. I don't know. But God is saying as a practical aspect of life, in your life, don't mix things up. Don't mix things up. Principle number nine is don't get all mixed up. What does this have to do with adultery? You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Don't adulterate things. Don't adulterate things. These, are, these things are symbolic and, and they're the way that God reached into some of the most simple aspects of Jewish society to make himself present there. So when you're out sowing in your field, you can't just sow whatever you want. If you're going to sow grape seeds, sow grape seeds. If you're going to sow something else, sow something else. But don't sow them all together. Oh, what? that's right, because God doesn't want us to mix things up. Why doesn't he want us to mix things up? Because he wants them to be holy. Holy. And, and we see this throughout the scriptures, and that's the explanation of not mixing things, not adulterating things, is holiness. And God's implanting this idea of holiness in, again, very common areas of life, out plowing or, or sowing seed or making a jacket or a coat. And also, he goes all the way from sowing seeds in the field to sowing tassels on a robe. Don't mix them up. The idea is holiness. Now, the tassels on the robe, that word is zitzit. We've talked about this before. You can see them on the Jewish prayer shawls today. The zitzit, and it's all, all on all four corners of the prayer shawl or on all four corners of the robe. And oftentimes, you know someone who is orthodox in their Jewish faith because typically they might be dressed just like me, but you're going to see four tassels coming out from under the, the coat or the jacket or the shirt. Oh, okay, you got your tassels. Orthodox Jew, the zitzit. And the zitzit were given to the people, and, and this is talked about in Numbers 15, as a reminder to Israel that they were holy to the Lord. The zitzit signified their singular holiness. Their, they were sacred to God. So even when they got dressed in the morning, they'd put on the robe and they'd go, ah, zitzit, I'm holy to God. And they remember that day, I'm holy to the Lord. They're out in the field. Don't mix things up. Why? Because we're holy to the Lord. They're ready to plow. Don't put the ox and the donkey together. Why? We're holy to the Lord. 
And in all these things, it's a picture of singularity, of sacredness. But Moses uses a different word here. And I find this interesting in Numbers 15, 38. He uses the word zitzit that's translated tassels. Here we read this, don't make yourself tassels in the four corners of your garment. And the word tassels is not zitzit, it's gedalim. And gedalim is synonymous. So first of all, just understand that zitzit and gedalim are synonyms. So they mean the same thing. You can translate both of them tassels, and that's absolutely correct. The zitzit, the gedalim, the four corners of the robe, that's what they are. You can call it either one, and you would be correct in doing so. However, I find it fascinating that Moses switches the word here. I think the Spirit inspired him to change the word to gedalim. Why? Because gedalim has another meaning. Gedalim means fringe. Fringe. And a woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, Luke chapter 8, verse 43. And she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. So we know exactly what she touched, the tzitzit, the gedalim, the, the tassels. That's what she grabbed onto. Why? Because to the Jewish person, the tassel said holy. The tassel implied power by holiness. Here comes Jesus with his tasseled robe as any good Jewish man would be wearing and she sees that and she doesn't grab for his ankles. She doesn't grab for his shoulder. She doesn't just reach out to grab part of the robe. She goes for the zitzit, the gedalim, the fringe and grabs on and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? Well, they were all denying it, which I love that. I didn't know. Peter says, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out from me. What's the point? Listen, from the heart to the fringe, from the touch to the tassel, Jesus was pure holiness. Jesus was absolutely holy in and of himself. And it's because he was so holy that he had so much power. There's power in holiness. There's power in purity. And Jesus was absolutely pure. And when she grabbed that gedalim, that zitzit, she was immediately healed because Jesus is perfect holiness. And I tell you that story to remind you that the idea of pursuing holiness is not limited to Israel. It's not exclusive to Israel. You are holy to the Lord. You wear the zitzit, you see the tassels. You are holy to the Lord. And they were to be holy to the Lord. But so are you. And so am I in our Christian lives. Something we've gone over. And, and I remind you again that we are not called to be saved and to be washed and then just to live however. We are called holy. Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What is that image? Perfect, holy, pure. 1 Peter 1, 15, like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, be holy, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you're mixed up, on the idea of holiness, just, just keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the Holy One. He will make you holy so long as your eyes are fixed on Him. And He is the source of that 
purity of that power. Well, the rest of chapter 22 now deals with sexual morality in marriage, but continues God's concern for love and holiness and for not adulterating things. And it also shows us a father's tender heart for his daughters. So watch this, verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Well, then the girl's father and her mother, they shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. Girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin, but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And so they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him, which, by the way, probably meant they would beat him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, which is double the marriage dowry, and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed the, a virgin of Israel, and she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. Nice guy. Poor girl. <laughs> She's stuck with him now. The cost of being a jerk like this, if he was lying, if he just didn't want to be with her, but claimed this about her, was chastisement, the double dowry, and a permanent marriage. But you got to understand this. Verse 15 uses this phrase, the evidence of the girl's virginity. What was that? This was the blood-stained bedsheets from the wedding night, or, or possibly the wedding nightgown. And the next morning, this was given to mom and dad. And they would display it proudly. Can you even imagine? Do you know they still do this in some neighborhoods in New York and Chicago? And it's still done in many places in the Middle East that when a woman, a virgin is married and there often would be then the evidence there would be blood on the sheets or on the nightgown and that would be given to mom or dad and mom and dad would take it out and they'd hang it out outside and my, my daughter, I raised a virgin, see here's the proof. I just wanted you to know about that. <laughs> How weird is that? And you're not going to forget this real soon either. But think about this. The father kept the blood as proof of the purity. You see where I'm going? Proof of the bride's purity. The blood was the proof of her purity. Principle number 10. And if we miss nine, don't get all mixed up. Number 10, the proof of purity is in the blood. The proof of purity is in the blood. In him, Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And the translation of filthy garment in the Hebrew is a menstrual cloth. That is how graphic the Bible is with our righteousness. Our righteousness is like that. That is how unclean, we think we're so good, we think we're so righteous before the Lord. No, it's like a menstrual cloth, Isaiah prophesied. 
Our blood does us no good. Our blood is filthy, but the blood of the lamb. See, this is where there's a shift. Now it's not the blood of the bride that, that proves her purity. It's the blood of the groom that proves the bride's purity. Revelation 19, 7, let's rejoice and be glad. Give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I love that verse because it reminds me my righteousness has been given to me, not produced by me. I am righteous because Jesus made me righteous. How? By his perfect, pure blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 20. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death. <laughs> wow. Because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus, Moses preaches, you shall purge the evil from among you. He's preaching this to all the people of Israel gathered there on the plains of Moab as they're listening. That means the daughters were hearing this too. What, what kind of impact might that have on a little girl in her father's house? I'm not messing around. I mean, what, what if we had this law in the books in America today? Wouldn't that change a few things? You know? It's, it sounds barbaric, but listen, this is a great example of a law of restraint. This is not God saying after the fact, oh, you did this, kill her. He's saying, don't do this because if you do this, you are deserving of death. It's that serious. Harsher penalties laid out beforehand to discourage the law violational behavior. And if you look through the scriptures, it's difficult to find any example of this, of a, of a young virgin girl in her father's house who has been betrothed, but now is found to not be a virgin anymore and so worthy of death. A case of this law could have been put to use, I guess, in the little town of Bethlehem. Matthew 1.18 says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I can imagine Joseph going, yeah, right. Seriously, Mary? Joseph being her husband, listen, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And I love this about Joseph. We know very little actually about Joseph. We know he was a carpenter of Nazareth. We see him in the story of the birth of Christ, but we don't know much more about him, but we know this. He was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. And what a beautiful example of where love and righteousness overlap. Principle number 11, get this, love exceeds the law. Love exceeds the law. The law was Mary was obviously not a virgin anymore. At least so it seemed, so it seemed because she was pregnant. So worthy of stoning, right? But Joseph, who had the right at that point, thinking that she had betrayed him in their betrothal, had the right at that point to say, I got to bring you to the city gate and have you stoned to death. By Jewish law. What does Joseph do? A man who was righteous as God is righteous 
says, no, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I think Joseph really loved her. I can't do that to her. Love exceeds the law. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be more righteous than they are. How in the world could you be more righteous than someone who keeps the law to a T? And here's how. The law is perfect, but love exceeds the law. How can you be more righteous than the Pharisees? You love in a way that they don't. Well, they kept law, but love is greater than the law. Love, it, it abounds beyond the law. And we see that in Joseph. Love, love exceeds law. Verse 22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Both of them shall die. So in John chapter 8, the story of the adulterous woman thrown on the ground before Jesus, the Pharisees obviously ignored the both of them aspect of this law. They are both to be brought, not just the woman. So immediately they're violating the law just there. Before they even said a word, it was a violation to throw her down. Where was the guy? Maybe it was one of them. Or someone that was in league with them to try to entrap Jesus by disgracing this woman. Both of them shall die. If there's a girl, verse 23, who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death, the girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Note that his wife, I thought it said she was engaged. Same thing in Israel, right? If you're betrothed, engagement and betrothal in Israel was the same as marriage without the consummation. So he says, you violate, he's violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But note that American culture would have a huge problem with this. Hashtag me too. The problem with this is that how dare you say there is any responsibility on the part of the woman? Because she didn't cry out. How dare you put that on her? I'm going to get emails tonight. God respects women enough to give them a voice. And in this case, and I'm not talking about any situations of rape, but there are so many situations that we hear about in the news or by word of mouth or whatever, where a young man and a young woman, they sleep together and later the young woman claims something. So God puts parameters on that. God says, okay, here's the deal. If this happens in the city, and, and when you think about city, you got to think about like Jerusalem, where the houses are like this, where a street, if, if a woman is entrapped by a man in, in one of these houses and cries out, everybody will hear her. And so the Lord says, this happens in the city and she doesn't cry out. There's a reason for that. It's not Rick talking here. If it's in the city, then she's responsible. And he's responsible. They're both responsible. You can't just throw it off on the guy. It's, that's, not, that's not justice. 
But note this in verse 25, if in the field the man finds the girl who's engaged and the man forces her and lies with her and then only the man, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death for just as the man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. And what Moses is saying is she gets the benefit of the doubt if it's out in the field where no one could hear her cry out. So she's presumed innocent because whether she cried out or not, no one could have heard way out in the field. But in the city where everyone could hear if she doesn't cry out, she's guilty as he is guilty. But something more important, I think, here that you got to see, and that's in verse 27. Um, no, sorry, verse 26. God equates rape with murder. So to the Lord, it's the same. It's just as bad. Just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. So rape and murder are the same thing. I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh or, or um, non-compassionate, but the reality is God puts responsibility on men and women. And sisters, we need to understand this. This is a beautiful thing, that God loves his daughters as much as he loves his sons and has expectations for his daughters as well as for his sons, loves them enough to say, look, I, I, you're responsible for you too. And so the law for Israel was this kind of thing. Man, it, it, sexual immorality is dealt with immediately and seriously. And the law, again, listen, the law was laid down so that it would not happen. That's the point. That's why God is so serious, why Moses is laying this out and why he says over and over that you shall purge the evil from among you. You don't allow this stuff to roll on. See, this is, this is the problem that we have in our culture today. We have allowed immorality and adultery and sexual immorality of all kinds to roll on for so long. There's, how, do you, how do you pull it back now? How do you stop it? How do you speak against it without being a bigot or intolerant or hard-hearted or harsh? We've just allowed it. God says to Israel before they even get into the land, before they even are established as a nation, he says, don't allow this to grow among you. You put it out immediately. Verse 28, having fun yet? If a man <laughs> finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give so this is two single people now. This isn't, now, this isn't a, an adultery thing related to marriage or betrothal. This is now a single woman and a single man, and they are discovered. Verse 28. Then verse 29, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her and he cannot divorce her all his days. I think that's a great idea. What if we applied that in American culture today? How would that change sexual attitudes in our country? Let me put it to you simply. Sexual contact is a marital contract. You sleep with her, you marry her. That's it. You sleep with him, he's your husband. That's it. Done deal. Might want to think twice before you jump in bed together. Because the truth is, if you're responsible enough to have sex, then you're responsible enough to be married to the person that you sleep with. 
Oh, no, no, no. No, see, in American culture, we have to test things out. We need to find someone we're compatible with. Trust me, God knows how to make it work. You're compatible, okay? But we think, no, no, I've got it. And, and so what happens? Statistically speaking, the more people a person sleeps with before marriage, the more likely for the marriage to end in divorce. Statistically speaking, that's just the way it goes. I'm not saying you have to end up divorced or that you will end up divorced, but every person that you sleep with, this, this came right out of the True Love Waits campaign. You're giving a little piece of yourself to that person. And then you finally meet up with, with Mr. Wright or, or Miss Wright, and what do you have left? Give her what you can, give them what you can, but there's all these other people. And then there's the comparison that's always in your mind and the, remi- and the, the memory. that God just says, look, don't do that. And if you're going to, if a young man's going to sleep with a young woman, great, get married. That's it. You, are, you have found your spouse. Ooh, but, but what if I don't have like lifelong love feelings for her? You'll get them. Develop them. Because love is chosen. It is not felt like we preach in American culture. It's chosen, which is why arranged marriages over the years, especially among the Jewish people, worked. Because the husband and the wife, it was arranged, they got married, they're together, now figure it out. And you know what? They did. And they learned to love each other. I love that song in Fiddler on the Roof. You know the one I'm talking about? If you've seen the play, where Tevye sings to his wife, he says, do you love me? And she starts saying, yeah, for 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Do I love you? And by the end of the song, she finally goes, perhaps I do. <laughs> and it's so sweet because that's love, man. That's love. And when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's what he's talking about. Not do I feel like loving my neighbor? Do I feel like loving my wife? Do I feel like loving my children on a particular day in a particular moment? It has nothing to do with it. It's am I willing to love them? Am I choosing to love them? Well, verse 30, and we'll, we'll be done here. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> How do we draw a principle out of that? Let me give it to you real quickly. Don't go after your father's wife, okay? This is, this is a restatement, by the way, of Leviticus 18, verse 8, and Leviticus 20, verse 11, where he actually has to say this now three times. Guys, don't take your father's wife. Now, what, what they think maybe this was about was an older father who would take a younger wife and then he'd pass away. And so the firstborn son might even be roughly the same age as, as his father's wife and be somewhat attracted to her. And God says, uh-uh, nope, nope, she's out of bounds. She was your father's wife. And you respect that and you leave it alone. Don't go after your father's wife. This actually finds application in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 Paul says, it's actually reported there is an immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you know what Paul says to do with that person? 1 Corinthians 5, 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Disfellowship him. That is the one example in the New Testament of disfellowshipping someone because the act is so evil, it's so abhorrent, disfellowship that person. Now, what's interesting is if you follow that story through in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, restore him. 
It's been long enough. So the purpose was never just to cut the guy off. It was disfellowship him for now so that he can be restored later. It's, it's interesting. Don't go after your father's wife. But I was thinking about this today, and, and I'll conclude with this. All of these principles, the one thing that they all have in common moving through chapters 21 and 22 and actually even beyond that is the love of God because all of these are about relationships, the right way to do relationships. We, we get shocked at the idea that because of adultery, two people might get stoned to death. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's God trying to prevent? Adultery. What comes with it? Pain and heartache and hurt and anger and bitterness and messed up lives. God says, I don't want that. So don't do it. And throughout these chapters, it's, it's relationship, it's, it's love, it's principles of one anotherness because it matters to God. It matters to God. And when he says here at the end, a man shall not take his father's wife, I'm going to make a spiritual application of something that matters to God. Who in the Bible is the wife, listen to me, the wife of God. Who's the wife of God? It's not the church. It's Israel. And, and, and get this, we, this is such an important distinction. The wife of God is Israel. Always has been referred to. Isaiah 54 verse 6, and there are plenty of other places. In fact, you could read the whole prophecy of Hosea and get the idea. But Isaiah 54, 6, the Lord has called you, Israel, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. And he talks about and he treats Israel as his wife throughout the Hebrew scriptures. But some Christians get more enthralled with the father's wife than with our groom. I want to be like Israel. I'm going to start keeping all the feasts. And by the way, if you want to keep the feasts of Israel just for fun, cool. They're amazing. And they're instructive. And we've done Passover seders here because they teach us so much about what they were pointing to in the first place, which is our groom, Jesus Christ. But I've talked to Christians who get all excited about becoming Jewish in their Christianity. They go to a Messianic congregation. Which, by the way, if I read the Scriptures correctly, and this is with all due respect to a Messianic fellowship, if I read the Scriptures correctly, there's no such thing as a Messianic fellowship. There's just the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So there's just the church. If a Jewish person gives their life to Jesus and finds the fulfillment of Judaism in their Messiah, Jesus Christ, hey, that guy, that girl is part of the church. You're just part of the church. So then where does the church's heart beat? For our groom. See, Israel's the wife of God. The church is the bride of Christ. And it's such an interesting distinction from Older Testament to Newer Testament. Some want to keep the Jewish feasts. A Christian wants to keep Jewish feasts and Jewish laws and, and thinks that by doing these Jewish things that it makes them more holy perhaps or will, it'll increase their experience perhaps or it'll bring them closer to God maybe. Listen, we have a groom. We have a groom. Don't take your father's wife. No, focus on your groom. His name is Jesus. And he's waiting for us. And that 
marvelous day for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So with all these things, you want to be a better neighbor. You want to be a better husband, a better wife. You want to be a better brother or sister in the fellowship. You want to do things right. You want to be pure and holy. Just love Jesus. Our wedding feast is coming soon enough. And Father, thank you so much for your word to us tonight. And I know there are various things here and some hard to hear, Lord. Some of this just seems so abrupt and so absolute and so harsh, especially, especially when we compare it to the culture that we're living in that is just so bland and accepting of, of anything. And Father, when I read through all these things, I remember, I recognize in our culture that accepts everything, there's so much pain. There is so much heartache and there's brokenness and bitterness and hurt and sorrow. And Father, it is apparent by your word that you love us way too much to let us just walk through that stuff. To, to, to allow us to be messed up. You say, don't do that. And we have such a love we have such a groom in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, tonight, I, I know your, your heart for your people is forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, so that we can walk with joy in the love of our Savior. So I pray, Father, as we conclude these things tonight, that if, if anyone here is, is struggling with some heartache, perhaps because of a sin choice or, or perhaps because someone else has sinned against them. If anyone's hurting, Lord, that the love and grace of your spirit would come upon us right here in this place. That people would know the love of God. And I pray, Father, your love will impact us and affect us all the more. I ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. <music>